0: Hello and welcome to the Home Assistant Podcast. This is a special podcast today. Uh We're joined today by the one and only Paulus. Welcome back.
1: Hey, what's going on?
0: Well, you tell us. It's been quite a while since we've had you on the podcast. That's right. Naboo has like, tripled their employees and there's been so many cool new features coming out since the last time we had you on. So, yeah, it's been a while. It
1: has been a while. I don't remember when the last time was. Was it in 2019?
0: Yeah, I think so. With Pascal, I think.
1: Yeah. We should have researched this before the podcast recorded.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe for the next time we
2: have you on, (laughs) Will.
0: This episode is sponsored by Home Assistant Cloud by Nabucasa. Easily and securely access your local Home Assistant instance remotely for a small monthly fee that also supports the Home Assistant project. Configuration is via the user interface, so no fiddling with router settings, SSL certificates, or YAML. So I think the the theme we usually have with you is uh, how's, how's version one coming along, you know? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, it's coming along pretty nice. I think that um, we've been doing so much polishing and so much like things have been moving faster and like getting faster and bugs getting squashed. Uh, in the last couple of releases, I think this year, it really has picked up. I think the the biggest thing we've been working on is that we've been revamping the configuration screen yeah. So one of the things that uh, have been going on is that we, you know, at the state of the union, I talked about like the how we grouped it into like inputs and outputs, where the inputs are the devices, the entities, your uh, the people, mm-hmm. and your integrations, and the outputs are the scripts, the scenes, the you know the automation stuff, pretty much. And yeah. so we have regrouped the whole uh, configuration screen by those concepts. So there's like a block of like inputs and then you have like the four tabs of like the integrations devices. And we've been really working in the last two releases to really, and in one nine, it will continue to really get those, the inputs really solid. So we added logos, we have this thing called related items. So you like, you click on a device, you see which config entry is part of it, which entities are part of it in which, automations it's used, in which uh, and uh, scenes it's used, scripts it's used. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, this is all, of course, part of making it easier, which was like the overarching, like, message, right, from the State of the Union. And I think that's the, you know, for 1.0, the, the goal is, like, it has to be easy. And I think this yes. is where, I mean, with the conflict panel, we're getting really close. I think the biggest point that the left is to, Redo the main dashboard because it's just now a list of options. We want to get that some more information right off the bat. Um, so it's easier to know where to like click. We want to integrate the supervisor panel into the configuration screen because right now, especially now that it's renamed to supervisor, people look at like, why is there like a, a panel in my sidebar called supervisor, which everything it does is related to settings. right? So it yeah. should be in there. Developer tools contain some t- tabs that are not developer tools. So the the info panel should be part of settings somewhere. And I know that's, I mean, these are kind of things that like where settings is going, which is really like 1.0 is really about like the settings screen and being able to administrate a home assistant. Because for the the usage wise, right? I mean, Lovelace is very solid. I think that we just added multiple dashboards. So that was really like the, the, the finishing touch for... Lovelace, I think, for 1.0 was to be able to, you know, do be able to get multiple dashboards. And I think eventually, you know, we need to get... It's like, going to be awesome,
0: by the way. Yeah. Like, multiple dashboards is a great feature
1: to have. Right. And I think, I mean, the next step is, is once you have multiple dashboards, we can be like, I want to show this dashboard when I open the app and... I am not in the home, right? So you can have like a an away dashboard that you get seen when you open the app. And I want to be able to have like certain people see certain dashboards and these kind of uh, cool things. Yeah. Um, but that's, I mean, th- those are things are, those are not built yet, but those are now all possible. And it's going to be easier to be done based on like, because now the foundation of dashboards is there. And so, yeah, I know Home Assistant 1.0 is getting, you know, it's chugging along pretty nicely, I would say. <laughs> and uh yeah i mean i still i can't say when it's going to be out i think uh with this whole pandemic everything is also a little different delayed and pushed out, yeah. yeah so it's we'll we'll see i think it's the biggest uh thing but i mean it is moving there and like it's getting better that's awesome that's good to hear
0: so talking of the the pandemic it's obviously april 2020 for people maybe listening to this in the future everyone's locked in at home around the world. How's Nabucasa going with that? I'm guessing there's no real change in terms of working from home because everyone's remote anyway.
1: Right. I mean, employee-wise, it's, I mean, we're all been working from home. It's mainly like our, you know, our partners that are at home, the kids that are at home. Uh, but for now, it seems to all everybody has been able to cope with it uh, well. Um, yeah. I think it's, we haven't seen the numbers, like it's too early on. So we don't know how like the people supporting the Home Assistant project through nabucast is going to be impacted, um, mm-hmm. right? Because um, obviously when the economy is shrinking and we're all at home, right? Like who needs a remote UI when you're at home? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think uh, I, I think, I mean, for now it's going well. We just had two new people come on full time. Um, we had uh, Martin. Martin has been, of course, uh, around for a long time for anyone that has contributed code. Um, can, Martin was like one of the main uh, reviewer guys. He's been really mm-hmm. like helpful always. And I mean, he's now uh, obviously also still doing reviews. Uh, and Mainly when we get people full time, it's the stuff they were already doing. They just continue doing that. So he's doing uh, a lot of reviews, but he's also focusing on Z-Wave. So Okay. I've been working last December. Um, I visited. I was in Denmark because my uh, in-law, uh, in-law, my wife is from Denmark, and so I was visiting my in-laws. And then I also stopped by uh, Copenhagen, where uh, Silicon Labs is with the Z-Wave office. So I stopped mm. and talked to the Z-Wave people. And, you know, they were really, uh, you know, friendly. They were. They liked Home Assistant. Uh, some of them used Home Assistant, and. You know, they want to get Home Assistant, like, on board to get, like, a certified Z-Wave experience. Okay. Um, And, you know, not too long after that, like, in the beginning of January, um, Silicon Labs announced that a lot of the protocols of Z-Wave, like, the the things that were first held by Silicon Labs are now being donated to the Z-Wave Alliance, so Z-Wave is opening up more. With the goal, also, that eventually, like, you know, we want to get open Z-Wave be able to get Home Assistant certified by using Open Z-Wave as a uh, library. So that's something that, um, I mean, this is like long-term we're working on, but we're, so now Martin is focusing on wrapping up our new Z-Wave integration. So we announced this at the State of the Union as well. We're working on where we re- we've we been working with the Open wave team to get a new z-wave daemon that communicates over mqtt with home assistant uh mm-hmm. so we uh it's a lot more stable it means that if you restart home assistant z-wave st- network stays up right which was one, one of the things that could take like a long time to reboot and it means it will be easier to stay up to date with the latest versions of open z-wave and that's something that martin is working on right now as well to like wrap up
0: so will that be a separate like Like a system running alongside Home Assistant Core? like You mentioned MQTT, so does that mean every Home Assistant instance will need an MQTT broker somewhere in the back end?
1: Um, Yes. If you want to use Z-Wave, you will have to use MQTT. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, for for Home Assistant it's easy because we have the add-ons, right? So there will be an open Z-Wave daemon, which is an application, of course, and the MQTT broker, both of them will be um, add-ons. And so, we have this uh, out-of-discovery stuff and add-ons nowadays. Mm-hmm. So, like, the moment you install right now already the MQT broker, it can config- it will configure Home Assistant. So the same thing will be happening with Z-Wave, right? And I think the, my goal is that if you plug in a USB stick that is Z-Wave compatible, we ask the user, you want to set up Z-Wave? And then we do everything. Like, it's just done. Right. So, so it's kind of like a, just an easy, like, wizard, next, next, finish,
2: go. Right. Like, you don't have to go in, find the device name. Exactly. Put all
1: that stuff in. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's the goal. And that's, like, I mean, that's, that's what Martin is working towards, right? Is that, like, being able to just plug in a Z-Wave stick and get it going. Yeah. And then this infrastructure of, like, mapping, like, USB sticks to add-ons and integrations and all that stuff, we want to do the same thing for Zigbee. Yeah. Um, Zigbee is, of course, a lot more mature already. Um, we have a great team working on that. But that's something once we have all these pieces linked up where we can say, hey, this add-on and this integration, then why not do it for other stuff?
2: Yeah. So how do you see, how do you see, like at some point, do you see more importance or or more priority given to Z-Wave versus Zigbee versus, because Zigbee, for those who don't know, Zigbee is fully open uh, as a standard and so on. Z-Wave today is still pseudo licensed,
1: right? So I think, well, the the thing with Z-Wave, the problem they, that like the, the licensing part was that there was only one manufacturer of chips. Yeah. And obviously that's one of the reasons why a lot of big vendors are not using it because if that one manufacturer would increase the price, then you have nowhere else to go.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and this is something where a, a Z-Wave is like trying to get something going with like opening up like parts of their stack. Yeah. Um, and so I think there are at least someone, some other chip manufacturer will probably step up as well. Because they're owned by Silicon Labs, and Silicon Labs, I mean, they make 80% of all ZQ chips in the world, I think, something like this. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I think that Silicon Labs' goal is to just make more chips. They don't really care about the protocol, right? They don't, sure. I don't think they care to make a lot of money off just licensing C-Wave. They just want to produce the best chips, yeah. and then you buy their chips.
2: Yeah, they're a hardware company first kind of thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, which makes sense.
1: So... For now, of course, Martin is going to focus on, on Z Wave just because there's no there's no active developers and uh, but once Z Wave is like integrated, right, we can like look at other stuff. Um, but for now, I mean, there's there's enough work to do <laughs> to just get yeah, Z Wave sure. going. We're, compared to the Zigbee experience, we're like way behind. So yeah,
2: yeah, and and I, I'm I'm a Zigbee user, but I've I've heard the same thing with from the Z Wave front, right? Just yeah. Know. A lot of issues there, or not necessarily issues, but just experience issues, if anything. Yeah. Right? No, yeah, I, I'm a I'm a Zigbee uh, user as well. Yeah, so. yeah. So well, that's cool. So, I mean, one of the other things we, we kind of wanted to talk about was was uh, the elephant in the room, where um, <laughs> so so there there was a blog post that came out, Paulus. So I'm not sure if you wrote that or or one of the other uh, one of the other guys wrote that, but basically um uh, around moving to the ui for adding devices right um right. i i know there uh, i saw a lot of stuff twitter facebook <laughs> the works right on on the internet as a whole um around around um you know there there uh, it sounds like there might be some misconceptions and and maybe we we can clarify why you're taking that route and and kind of the the logic behind those decisions right
1: right Uh, yeah so this uh adr 10 um mm -hmm. architectural decision record 10 uh this is how we make uh kind of like set up like new rules for the home assistant organization for contributions um this all happens in the architecture repository generally this time we actually we did go through an adr but we did all the prep work in like uh we just a, we have a, a Discord channel just for all the people that are active contributors to the project. Yeah. Um And because one thing that we've been noticing, like you know, I can actually start, tell you how this all started, right? Like before we dive in, like what 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 yeah. we're changing is that um, you know we've been I mean actually to if we want to start at the very beginning, we have to go back to 2017. So in 2017, we only had YAML configuration. Everything was mm-hmm. done in YAML. And there were a lot of issues with this. And I think the you know the issues were, for example, how to deal with discovery. There was no, like, you know, YAML is a source of truth. We cannot write to YAML because, we you know, you lose your comments, you lose your formatting, all your includes, all that stuff. Yeah. So we would discover things, but then the moment you had to... Configure it, you couldn't because it was discovered. There was no conflict. Then you had to actually add it to your configuration yourself. And then you had to go to discovery and say, ignore this. Yeah. Because discoveries would otherwise override what you had manually configured. And so it meant that every user going in had to, you know, learn about this and was like, initially, a user would like open a home assistant of all these discovered things and be like, okay, now I want to tweak some settings. And then it gets into like this. Hell it was a really steep curve once you have it like installed, once you have to dive into YAML. And so, to solve this, we introduced what we call config entries. And config entries is uh, just that the integrations configuration itself is stored in like a piece of data. That piece of data is managed by Home Assistant. So, you know, we and this config entry um, to create it, you know, we had different paths that like all lead to the same. So, there was Uh, We could import it from YAML. Um, If it got discovered, we would open like a wizard, like a config flow that Mm -hmm. guided you through. Hey, we discovered this. Do you want to add it to Home Assistant? And do you want to like, yes or no? Uh, Nowadays, you can also ignore discovered entries. And then, of course, there's the manually starting a config flow to create a config entry, right? So you can um, just go to the add integration button. Um, And then later, once it's been set up, you can use the options flow to manage options in your config entry. And, you know, there's been, uh, once we added that, it became easier for Home Assistant to manage these things because, you know, we we have one set of settings and we know, you know, as an integration, you know where those settings are. You can, once it's discovered, you can easily check against those settings. We can write to it. But of course we were still supporting YAML. So we did always a YAML import when the integration started up. But the problem is with YAML is that we don't always know which YAML configuration belongs to which configuration entry. You know, if you configure like five times a certain integration, then how do we know which integration maps to which config entry? Right. And then, so this might become more complicated, more complicated, and so at some point, um, it became no longer mandatory to add YAML support. Like people were like, no, we'll just use the UI um, because there's certain authentication methods also that, you know, it doesn't work with YAML. I think the, the biggest example is, for example, you know, take Ring. To yep. log into Ring, you first put in a username and password. And the second step is that you need to put in a two-factor authentication code. Yeah. So if this was done in YAML, you would have to put your username and password in, uh, in YAML and then we would have to show a UI anyway, right, to get you the two-factor authentication code. And then, like, you can continue and, like... But you still had your configuration, your username and password in your YAML. Yeah. Now, with our config flows, we are able to not even store your username and password anymore because we take your username and your password, ask for your 2 a code, then we get a set of tokens, and we don't even store the password anymore. We just store that token, that little piece of information, Um, And the other thing was something like the the Philips U Hub, right? The Philips U Hub had, uh, you have to press this button on your hub for it to get configured. And it also meant there was already a UI flow for that as well. And so these config entries, I mean, this evolved over time, right? Since uh, So I think beginning of 2018, we introduced config entries and this has been like growing and growing. And so at some point what started happening is that certain big integrations, uh, integration with a lot of options or integrations that are like very complicated with a lot of moving parts, like a unify, um, decided to like, well, I don't wanna manage all the, the YAML in anymore because it's very complicated because YAML gets loaded. We have to map up all the options, write down, write all the options to the config entries. Then, low, then apply those options while we're running, et cetera. And so they decided, like, I don't want to maintain this. Like, I mean, these are volunteers. And so these one, they decided, like, well, I'm, I I, want to drop the YAML. And then we were like, okay. And so they dropped the YAML, and then we got, like, shitstorms. And so each time we had a integration say, hey, we don't – I'm going to stop maintaining the way that you can configure it through YAML. Right. Because the UI experience is just a lot better. People will be angry. And – you know, at some point we decided, we realized that as the home assistant organization, as by not having clear rules, we were opening up our contributors to these shitstorms, right? Because these contributors would just say, hey, I just follow the rules, blame them, mm-hmm. then, you know, we, the, the, the organization gets the blame and not like these individual people that are doing it in their spare time. And, you know, we saw comments like from maintainers that are not willing to make certain changes because you know they would get personally attacked and right. that's when we realized that okay this is wrong we need to protect our contributors they are like you know this is our whole project is built you know the majority of the people are contributors they are people doing this in their spare time and if we cannot protect them then like there's something wrong right like this is mm-hmm. not good and so that's where we decided in collaboration with like all these contributors to uh, create ADR10.
2: Right.
1: And so with ADR10, the thing that has changed is that if an integration... So this this first, ADR10, we lay out there's like seven different types of integrations. Integrations that communicate with devices, integrations that communicate with services. Um, Devices is Philips Hue. Services could be Spotify or Ring, which through the service, you talk to uh, The the device. But... It could also be, like, a a weather API or something like this. Yep. There are integrations that communicate with, like, transports. So an MQTT is a – it transports data, but it doesn't tell you how to, like – you know, you have to write your own protocol on top of it. Yeah. So, you know, MQTT is an example of that. Um, Then we have integrations that take data that's in Home Assistant and process it. So there's, like, the stats or the – Uh, derivative integrations, the Bayesian sensor, uh, these ones. Then we have integrations that do control, so that help with control. So there's scripts and there's scenes. And then of course we have the automation integration. So the automation one where you can write your own automations. We have the alert one, the device sunlight trigger integration. Um, They're very specific use case integrations. And in ADR 10, we say the first two, the ones that where you communicate with devices and the ones where you communicate with services, those will no longer be uh, configurable through YAML. And so right. it means that moving forward, we will no longer taking any contributions of integrations that uh, are that have YAML as a config option or like a. Yeah. It can only be configured through the UI. All the other ones, though we've this developed also in the beginning of this year, a new way of how we configure things. So this was really based on our experience with Lovelace, where for the people that are not familiar in Lovelace, you can have two different ways of configuring Lovelace, either through the UI or through YAML. Hmm. And both options have like, you know, for the YAML we have a reload option. So the moment you change your YAML, you hit reload in Lovelace and you get the latest uh, data without restarting, yep. or if you make it the UI, you don't have to restart at all. and with Lovelace dashboards, you can even per dashboard pick it's a YAML dashboard or storage dashboard. So that way you can cool. you know you can experience your storage and then write it to YAML when you're doing more advanced stuff or whatever, right? And so we actually extracted a set of like reusable helpers out of this, and we've been applying it to a lot of integrations. So all the input integrations, input Boolean, text, date, uh, number they have all now the same approach. So all these integrations, you can control through the UI and or you can manage through YAML. Right. You look at like, and you can reload them as well. So we just introduced a new dashboard for the UI uh, part, I think 108, maybe 107, where if you go to config, you go to automations and you click on helpers, you can like add these helpers. Um, yeah. And this approach is actually what in ADR ten is also decided. We're gonna put it's gonna like the goal is to add this to all the other integrations. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's a way where you can manage it both through UI, both through and through YAML. And I mean that's pretty much ADR ten in a in a nutshell. Right. So
2: so I know I know there was there was a lot of flack around uh, power users, where the power users feel like they're losing control over, you know, basically building some kind of a pipeline, running it through there, whatever that is, or or just the ability to kind of keystroke do stuff, right? So, I, I mean, most of the stuff, like you said, through this kind of a flow, will end up in the in the dot storage uh, folder. It'll be stored in there. Um, from a backups perspective, it's still it's still you still have the ability to backup, correct?
1: Right. I mean, if you you need to backup the storage directory anyway when you make a backup, yeah, because it contains your users, your the the hashed passwords, right? Like if you want to have the same users, the same, there's a lot of settings in there. Like your entity IDs are mapped to like the the, the internal codes that we get from the device and services, right. So so all that can still be. So So there, there is still a level of
2: control that you still have, right? And, right. And, and, I mean, if you really want to, you can go in and manually modify the JSON
1: files and stuff. Not that that's recommended in any which way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, I mean, yes, you can manually change the JSON files and then restart. I mean, it's, I think, you know, there's, uh, there could be added more, like, admin APIs, right? If people want to have these kind of administration stuff yeah. for, like, I want to... I want a certain way to specify it because the, the, the problem that we have is that there's a lot of stuff that people want to put in their YAML that we don't know in advance what they will be. So, you know, take, for example, you want to, you know, the entity registry. People have been saying, can I put the entity registry in YAML? And then the first thing I'm saying, like, how do we identify the entity? And they're like, well, entity ID, of course, but entity IDs can change, right? Like people right. actually use the entity registry to change IDs. Yep. And so how then are you identifying something that is only in, like, you know, the, the the only way you can identify it is by the internal identifiers that we get from the integration. So the moment we connect to your Philips U Hub, we get, like, your device serial number, right? And that's going to be our internal identifier. Right. So, yes, I guess we can, like, have an API with all these internal identifiers, but it's not going to be pretty because there's, like, three lines of identifiers for each for each N3 and stuff like this. Yeah. And, I mean, it seems that, like, people are not – I mean, I, I see the, a lot of the infrastructure as code, like, comments, but, I mean, no one ever works on it. We know it never – you know, nobody's ever mentioning it besides, like, in the comments when things are less – Useful for that. It's um, you know we are open for API changes if people have proposals on how to like integrate this into home assistant in a sensible way. Which is for us really the goal is that like you know as I said in the state of the union we have to make it easier. We have to yeah. make sure that your authentication credentials don't end up in your YAML and then you put your YAML online and you share your logins. Um, yeah. Yeah. That that's one thing that is really important to us because you know we've seen. People accidentally share their authentication information, and then people say, well, Home Assistant leaked my credentials, or, you know, people start using GitHub, and, you know, it's their first time GitHub, so it's not, you know, we have to make sure that we protect them from not accidentally putting things online, because it's very difficult to remove your repository. Like, a lot of people think if they're new to GitHub, because it's version controlled, that if they just delete it and then commit it again, no one can see it. But if you go through Git history and stuff, right? Like, right, you can still pull the file. Yeah, and I mean, this and, is yeah. not this is how Git works, of course, but this is something we need, to, we need to help users, like, not make these mistakes. Yeah, And the sure. best way to not make these mistakes is just to not be able to put it there. It's
2: which is fair, right? And 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 again, from from I mean, uh, uh, there was there was a large Facebook thread around this as well in the in the and Facebook page around uh, you know uh, why why are we losing it kind of thing. And and one of my comments around this was again, you and you talked about it, which is around authenticating these devices uh, or, or authenticating to these services, whether it's you know like, like you use the example of Ring. Right, um, where again, there's two-factor authentication, there's SSO, there, there's all all these different methods that would make it pretty difficult for uh, consuming via YAML. Right, uh, so so that that that's to to me that's as as somebody who is concerned about security, who is concerned about uh, again my credentials being compromised and such. For me, I would rather I would rather take the UI path. Than this, if if that means I'm more secure, right?
0: Right. So I'm gonna chime in here, and I'm gonna say first of all, I'm probably the the typical power user that you are referring to. I I prefer YAML over everything. I I always get a bit scared when I see things. I'm only going UI only, and I feel as though yeah. from a user point of view especially for a home assistant user point of view you've got to remember that we are people that prefer you know open devices and you know we prefer we don't like cloud only things and then sort of as i see things moving into the storage folder to me that is home assistant taking control away from me from something that i can then you know and i don't know what home assistant's is doing in that storage folder i try not to edit the JSON files. I don't want to edit JSON files at all because that's something I don't want to touch. So I'm guessing in terms of, from my point of view, if Home Assistant's managing all that storage folder, how do we go about having to, for example, reverting back to a previous version of Home Assistant if I upgrade and then changes are made in that storage folder? Can we? Can I then downgrade if there is an issue with one of my integrations in a newer version without problems? To me, that seems like a, a black hole.
1: Right. It's uh, So generally what happens right now in like our if we go look at, I mean, the, the storage folder contains many different pieces of information and it's like cache, like it's like we store the entities and these kind of things. And it's, um, you know, if we look at like downgrading the biggest, uh, the way we write our code is that older versions won't crash if they find new keys. So that means that, like, if a new mm-hmm. key is added to like specific object, an older version won't crash. One thing that can happen is that you know, with config entries, you don't have any breaking changes anymore in the configuration format, like ever. Because Homus isn't owns a configuration object, it means that an author of an integration is responsible for migrating if they have like breaking change. And generally, there doesn't have to, there doesn't happen to be many breaking changes anymore. I think the one breaking change just happened in, I would say it's called AirVisual, but anyway, this integration initially had one config entry for all the different like locations you want to track. And then the author decided, no, it's actually better if we have multiple config entries, one per location. And so in that case, they did do a version, like a migration. And so they went from like version one to version two. And then Home Assistant will make sure we migrate your config entries. And in this case, this would actually not work with your, you know, when you downgrade again, your average AirVis- AirVisual wouldn't work. Um, mm-hmm. That's the only uh, downside because we had to change, you know, migrate that internal the config entry version. But generally, there, there should do the all the other formats should are pretty static. So we're not gonna like change those. I think if we ever gonna change the core format, data formats that you really cannot roll back, that will probably be if we do like major version releases, right? So right. once we release 1.0, then like, you know, the the, the the structure is frozen. Like we can add keys, but we won't like, we can still go back and forward. Um, but of course, if 2.0 comes around, we will include the migration path, but not a migration path backwards probably.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. The only thing now, for example, if AirVisual would like uh, would not work if you would go to one hundred nine and then go back to one hundred seven or something. Um, but generally, this that, that would be the only type of breaking change that would happen. And I think the solution there would be to uh, just delete the config entry and set it up again. Yeah, it's just that. it's there's still some breaking changes. I think. You would have the same kind of breaking changes if you would migrate back from like a 109 to 107 if, you know, some YAML format has changed, for example.
0: Very true, yes. But, but I'm guessing in a YAML sense, I could, assuming that I had done a GitHub repo, I could then just go back and migrate that back in. True. Which is obviously right. the trade-off of convenience in the UI versus YAML being having to manage, you know, right. own your integration.
1: On the migrating config entry part, you know, we've had this logic since the beginning and I think there's only been used three times now. So it's like very, very rare. Mm, Generally, like we just get the authentication and then, you know, the rest is, you can be happened through an options flow or whatever. There's very seldom that there's a need for config entries to to be like migrated.
0: Right. And so we're seeing a lot of, integrations now sort of you know like you're bringing in scene editor and you know the automation builder that can also have you know both yaml and the ui with adr 10 are you solidifying that yaml in some form or how it is moving forward will be here to stay you're not going to eventually get rid of the yaml automations for example or the yaml scene builder
1: right no those are those are not going to go away I think, I mean, this is also something I mentioned at the State of the Union when I, you know, there's a whole section in the State of the Union where I talk about sharing. And, you know, we know sharing is super important. And, like, it's something that drives a lot of our community. And so anything that is meant to be shared will also remain to be done in YAML, but it's also going to be possible through the UI. So Mm -hmm. it's a choice. And so because right now there's going to be a set of users that, just don't feel comfortable with Git, GitHub, these kind of things. And so for them sharing, that that sharing is just not really an option. And so these people can still look at pe- other people that have shared their YAML. And actually, if you go to the automation editor, uh, you can actually turn on YAML mode. You just see the automation as a YAML, and you can paste in, like, automations that you found on the internet. Um, and that's, that's something... Well, actually, I have to... I don't know if you can do it on the full automation or just per automation block, like per trigger condition. We did have a contribution for it, but I don't know if it went through. But I mean, that is the goal that like you can, with Lovelace as well, you can like, hey, I want to see my whole Lovelace configuration that I managed to storage as YAML in the front end. You know, that's possible too. And so you can still paste in stuff, but uh, you know, having it just be done in YAML, that's not going to go away. Like that's that's a really valuable part of like, what home assistant is this? And I think that's, I mean, that would be silly to remove.
0: Mm.
1: yeah. And, and that's kind of key,
2: right? In terms of all the stuff that's, that's all the conversations that are happening, so.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that is why we also added these uh, collection helpers that allow us to have both YAML and storage-based uh, automations. Well, actually we don't use it for automation right now. We use it for like the input boolean, input date, input text. Automations actually use our old hybrid format where we have one dedicated YAML file that we write to, um, which we're probably going to keep.
0: And for someone that's just starting out and maybe they want to put up their home assistant on a public repo like GitHub or something, will I be committing my storage folder or leaving it out?
1: So you leave it out. So the storage folder is not something that you need to share. Um, because that's it doesn't contain your automations, it doesn't contain your scripts, it doesn't contain your scenes. Like all that stuff will be in your YAML. Um, storage contains your authentication, your the um, private stuff. The use private stuff. Yes, makes sense. Right.
2: Is there? Was there? What? What else? Uh, kind of are you guys working on, uh, Paulus? Or, or what else did you want to fill us in on?
1: Yeah, we're really. Uh, we've been working with Google on implementing the Google Local SDK. Okay. Um, and so, the Google Local SDK is uh, an interesting feature from uh, Google Assistant, where Google Assistant will be able to once you have the Home Assistant skill, or I think action. I think it's action in their world uh, mm-hmm. configured for your Google Assistant. And if Google Assistant then detects Home Assistant on your local network, then it will talk to Home Assistant to see if it can like identify with it, to say, hey, is this my Home Assistant installation? And if that is correct, then whenever you talk to Google Assistant, it will be able to send commands directly from the Google Assistant, like the Google Home Mini, for example, directly to Home Assistant. So it will make it slightly faster because it wouldn't have to go through Home Assistant Cloud.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's they announced it last year at Google I.O. And so we jumped on the bandwagon right away. We've been like we've had it working in the in Home Assistant since um well since like September I guess. But they mm-hmm. weren't like there were still some bugs and then they released like a, a final version in December, final beta and we updated to that and then they did their final rollout in February fourteen and like throughout this we've been working with Google and making sure that like we, everything we do is within like what they allow and everything that... Uh, and there were some bugs that we had to work out on both ends. But yeah, right now we're very close to getting live with that. And that's going to be uh, exciting. I think when when you talk to Google, it will be just like, you know, a little bit faster. Um, I think the the real speed increase for Google Home with local SDK will come once Google is able to do a bunch of commands locally. So right now, if they... Uh, you know, on Android phones, they're always the speech-to-text is really solid, like offline speech-to-text. So if they were ever be able to do that for the lights or something, right, like turn on the lights and, like, mm. it doesn't have to go through the Google Cloud because right now, actually, the, the speech-to-text part and, like, processing it to an intent in the Google Assistant is, like, what's the slowest part. It's actually not yeah. the right. Assistant Cloud. But once it can all be done local, I think then it starts moving very fast.
0: So when it becomes local when we're using this local SDK will people still need some form of Google uh, like a Home Assistant cloud remote access to activate this integration?
1: Uh, yes because there's a lot of there's a, only the commands will be sent locally in very specific cases so only if your Google Home is on the or your Google Assistant is on the same network and it can find your Home Assistant and the device that's being controlled does not require two-factor authentication, like uh, any security-related device mm-hmm. is not allowed, for example. Um, but if you, for example, would talk to your Android phone, it will still go through the cloud. Um, if it's a 2FA device, it will go through the cloud. All the syncing is done through the cloud. Um, so it's not like Home Assistant just, you know, Google just finds a home assistant device and you get a pop-up in home assistant being like, hey, you want... Google to control this device and then like that's done. Like that would be the right. dream of course, if that it's a level of integration that we can get with like other products. Yeah. Um, but until now, I mean, it's, it, it's I, I would say that like 70 or 80% of your commands probably end up going through the local connection, but there do still be a cloud connection required.
2: You got it. So it's, you're not completely disconnected. No, 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 no. Right,
1: right. And also I think when people hear the Google local SDK, some people have been assuming that it allows us to control devices that are in Google Assistant that do not come from Home Assistant, like a mm-hmm. Nest or like mm-hmm. whatever you have in there. And that's not the case, right? This is only allowing Google to control us locally and not to, uh, for us to control Google.
0: Well, that's right. interesting. So it's the other way around. Yeah. So Google has access yeah. to control Home Assistant entities and not the other way which i guess means you can't expose an entity from uh, like that's connected to your google assistant into home assistant then because it just won't exist exactly right
1: and so once i mean from a technical perspective the implementation is a pretty interesting approach because Google Homes and Google Home Mini, they have a Chromecast built in, right? And, uh, yep. and a Chromecast just runs JavaScript applications, which is like either for Chromecast Audio or the Chromecast on your TV. It's just literally Google Chrome that is like showing you the video. And for this local SDK, it's actually also running a Home Assistant built JavaScript application. So we wrote a small JavaScript application that... Is able to communicate with Home Assistant, and then your Google home will just spin up this like JavaScript application running on the device, which is it's kind of crazy, but it's cool, it works,
0: so oh, that's cool
1: yeah well have you have you guys seen the new logos in the u i the brand uh, yeah yeah yeah, like with Philips and all
0: that but it's like my favorite contribution this year so far yeah. <laughs>
1: it's been, yeah, so this is like a project Frank has been working on, so we have this new yeah a repository with brands, and then we have these guidelines where, like, he made this, like, an icon has these requirements and a logo has these requirements. And then we went through our current logos and, like, most of them dropped out. Like, <laughs> they were not good. <laughs> yeah. And then, it, it, you know, the, in, the cool thing is, is that, you know, because this is how, of course, like, we just crowdsourced this repository. So we build out, like, this continuous integration. So Frank made sure that the guidelines we have is automatically checked when people make contributions, Right. So it means that the contribution just has to be reviewed. Like, hey, is this the actual logo? Is this the actual you know, icon? Sure. Um, but after that, we can just merge it. And so we put out this repository, and Frank created issues for all the logos that were missing. And then there's been, like, five people that have been, like, hacking on it, like like crazy. And so within the last few weeks, we've been, like, all the, the, the most logos have been filled in right now. And it's mm-hmm. also it, – you can see it, like – it's funny because Frank was like, "Oh, I kind of generated my own uh, Hacktoberfest because we have been seeing so many pull requests." Yeah. So just to kind of like give an uh, indication, in the last two weeks, we've merged twelve hundred pull requests. <laughs>
2: wow! Wow! That's crazy.
1: Yeah, and then I mean, the normal, normally we are around like. Uh, six hundred. So that's like it's double the amount. Wow! Yeah.
0: Yeah, like I'm a really big fan of this. Like I think this is gonna make the UI in Home Assistant a lot more user friendly. Just a a little change like this is a really cool feature.
1: Yeah, it 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 helps so much with like discoverability. I think the the next step is that we start adding. uh, I want to uh, create like a device database. And so the first step would be to allow people to upload photos for devices locally. Mm -hmm. But then the next step would be that people could share those photos that they use for their local devices with like the community. So that way we can, once devices get discovered, we already have like photos of each device that kind of pop up in your UI, just to make it easier to scan a list, for example, to find a certain device or something.
0: Yep, that's cool. So then I could be looking at that a light bulb cool. and go, all right, yeah, I have that light bulb. It matches that. That's the one I want.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome.
2: Well, I mean, Paulus, if there's nothing else, uh, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully for all our listeners, hopefully this cleared up uh, a lot of the confusion and a lot of the stuff there. And uh, yeah, it was a good update.
1: Awesome. Happy to be here. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time it's been always awesome talking to you thanks take care. okay take care if you want to share your home assistant journey or come on as a guest reach out to us at feedback at haspodcast.io that's h-a-s-s podcast.io
2: the home assistant podcast is hosted by phil hawthorne and myself rohan caramandy For links to topics that we discussed today, check out our show notes on haspodcast.io.